New City, this morning we're beginning a sermon series in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And let me say at the outset, this is probably one of the more difficult books of the Bible, both for uh, Christians to understand and for pastors to preach. Part of the difficulty lies in Ecclesiastes seeming to be so loosed from the historical storyline of Scripture. Uh, The book makes no mention of the Jewish patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. There's no mention of election, the exodus, or God's special dealings with the nation of Israel. There's no mention of sacrifice. There's no mention of covenant. Instead, the Lord has given us 12 relentless chapters about the meaninglessness of life and the certainty of death. Bleak stuff. This is the revelation of God to his covenant people. Life is meaningless. All is vanity. How are Christians supposed to reconcile that message with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, Another difficulty is the book's literary genre. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, which is rarely quoted in the New Testament, which makes it difficult to make confident connections to Jesus Christ. Uh, to those redemptive historical connections related to our Lord's incarnation, death and resurrection, and in consequence, what God will accomplish in the new heavens and new earth. Nevertheless, it's essential that we make those gospel connections, even though they aren't jumping off the page. We must, we must interpret Ecclesiastes, any book of the Old Testament, as New Covenant Christians not as Old Covenant Jews without the full and complete revelation of God. And this is a theme I'll be returning to again and again throughout this series. Ecclesiastes exists in a canonical, whole Bible context. It's not an island unto itself, the church interprets, apart from the other 65 books of Holy Scripture and God's progressive unfolding revelation over the course of salvation history. I should, be, I should be kicked out of a synagogue for preaching this book faithfully as a New Covenant Christian. If I could just transpose my sermon today into a synagogue context and everything's fine, something's off, something's wrong. There's been progression, there's been more revelation. Now, as you can see in the sermon outline, I've deliberately carved out space in my sermon for a rambling introduction. So I've given you fair warning here, folks. Allow me to ramble on a bit more about genre, okay? And then we'll turn to the text itself. Uh, We need this under our belts first. The foundation documents of Christianity are 66 books, different books found in the Bible. 66 books written over centuries by many different authors and in many different types of different literary styles. We have genealogies, apocalyptic, laments, fables, history, psalms, gospels, letters, parables, uh, all, all of them conveying God's absolute culture, transcending revelation, but all conveying his truth in slightly different ways. Different ways that need to be understood and respected. Because different genres follow different literary conventions. We don't 
It won't do just to read everything literalistically off the page. There are different rules of interpretation depending on the book, depending on the genre. We don't want to read the book of Revelation the same way that we read the book of Acts. So I want you to pretend that you're walking down the street. It's a windy day and some paper blows by you, some trash. You reach out and you grab a passing sheet. And at the top of the page, you read, Dear Broomhilda. And then there's a body of text. And at the bottom of the page, it reads, Sincerely, Wolfgang. Without reading another word, what do you know you're holding in your hand? A letter. How can you be sure? Because letters have a distinctive style and form that we recognize immediately. Another piece of paper blows by. You live in a very dirty city. You grab it. And at the top of the page, you read, Once upon a time, there's a body of text, and then at the bottom of the page, and they lived happily ever after. David, what's that? Are you listening? <laughs> that's, a, that's a fairy tale. You know, how do we know? Because that's how every fairy tale begins and ends, right? Every single one. Let's just try one more. Another piece of trash blows by. You grab it. That is to further state that within said time period and within said county and state, the aforesaid defendants to combine, conspire, and agree one with another and with others to defraud the state of Oklahoma. What's that? Some, some kind of legal document, right? That's what legalese sounds like. We recognize it immediately. It's incomprehensible. New City, the letter, the fairy tale, and the legal document all belong to distinct genres. They are three types of literature, each marked by a distinctive style, form, and content that we instantly recognize, and each has its proper place and its own rules for interpretation. And I'm going to be upset if I'm meeting with my lawyer. I don't have a lawyer, but if I were meeting with my lawyer and you know, start, suddenly I start hearing about a dragon being slain and a, and a princess, it's like, no, this is a legal document. There's a time and place for this. Ecclesiastes belongs to the same literary genre as Job and Proverbs. It's wisdom literature. And in this particular genre, we don't find case law. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he didn't have in his hands the book of Proverbs, right? He had the Ten Commandments. Because in wisdom literature, we don't find thou shalt do this covenant community. Thou shalt not do that. Instead, as you can see in your bulletin, wisdom literature is concerned with wise actions which integrate people harmoniously into the order God has created. Wisdom is concerned with the general order and patterns of living in God's creation. And biblical wisdom is based on one foundation, the fear of the Lord. That's the bedrock. That's the starting place of all wisdom literature. The fear of the Lord is where wisdom begins, our reverent awe for God. Not science, not our intellect, not philosophy, not our emotions. All those things have their place, but a worldview built on one of those foundations will crumble. Let's say for your PhD thesis, you're delving into the quantum mechanics of black holes and you filled 300 pages with the with scientific calculus that would make mere mortals just 
pass out in terror. And every computation in your thesis is entirely correct. But the first equation on the first page of your 300-page thesis is 2 plus 2 equals 5. And everything that follows in your thesis is based on the veracity of that equation. It's your mathematical foundation. 2 plus 2 equals 5. Friends, listen carefully. The search, the, search for, the search for knowledge can go wrong because of a single mistake at the beginning. The search for knowledge can go wrong because of a single mistake that we make at the beginning. If you get the foundation wrong, everything else in your life will be wrong too. What Ecclesiastes tells us is that true knowledge about God is the only thing, the only thing that puts human beings into a right relationship with reality itself, with all the objects of our perception. And that leads us necessarily into categories of divine revelation. God must disclose himself to us. The overall message of this 12-chapter book is this. Look at the top of your bulletin. The message of Ecclesiastes. Fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life, a meaningless life, into a meaningful life that will enjoy God's good gifts and to escape the final judgment. Turn to the last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes. It's on page 671. Just look at the concluding two verses. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 to 14. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Have you ever been on one of those house of horror uh, roller coaster rides? That's what Ecclesiastes is. It's a 12-chapter horror ride tour of a cosmically futile existence, an existence lived out by billions of people. The author puts himself and he puts us into the shoes of the humanist, the secularist, the person who begins their thinking with man in the observable world, the person who knows God only from a distance, from an under-the-sun perspective, not through any category of divine revelation. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher probes domain after domain of life, domains so many people value and cherish and even worship, and he pronounces it all futile, vain, meaningless, chasing after the wind, from an under-the-sun stance, from an earthbound perspective, a life not lived in the obedient fear of God is a life utterly wasted. It's a meaningless life. And it's a life that will be judged. This book, New City, is a warning to us all. It's a warning of satanic garbage that can pile up under our feet and suffocate and bury the glory of God. It's a warning 
to every day find our joy and our contentment and our fulfillment in picking up our cross and denying ourselves and following Jesus in death. Make no mistake, Ecclesiastes isn't just a message for the atheistic secularist. This book was originally written to God's covenant people, which means that every verse, Christians ought to stop and say, thank God, thank God, my life, my existence once was futile. It once was purposeless. But now, by God's grace, I fear the Lord and I keep his commandments as his indwelling spirit enables me. My salvation has been won through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. My sin has been atoned for. I am united to Jesus through his spirit and adopted into God's family. And I can die with no fear of judgment because of the cross. I'm a pilgrim in a strange land. Heaven is my home. And I live out my life from that perspective, not an under-the-sun perspective, which means I can enjoy my life. I can actually really, truly enjoy my life and all the good things that God gives me. I can enjoy life even if God takes those good things away because my joy and my contentment and my fulfillment, what makes life sing, those things aren't found in this world. That's how a Christian reads this book. So let's start. Verse 1. The words of the teacher, or in Hebrew, Koheleth, son of David, king in Jerusalem. And I guess the first thing we need to determine is the author of Ecclesiastes. He calls himself in Hebrew, Koheleth, which means something like leader of the assembly, teacher, preacher, professor. Those are the best approximations that we have in English. And in verse 12, Koheleth refers to himself as king over Israel in Jerusalem. And then in verse 16, he writes, I said to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. So that pretty much rules out everybody except for King Solomon, David's son. Historically, David and Solomon were the only two kings who ruled over all Israel from its capital, Jerusalem. The kingdom split in two, north and south, after Rehoboam, Solomon's son, came to power. And this is a point of great debate. Some commentators think Koheleth is King Solomon. Others, probably the majority of commentators, point out that Solomon is not named and suggest Koheleth may be a religious leader, who, as part of the dramatic argument of Ecclesiastes, stylizes himself as a kind of super Solomon, someone as conservative as Don Carson thinks that. Uh, So here we have a man filled with all conceivable wisdom and with the resources at hand to sample all the pleasures of life. Our writer is sort of a combination of Aristotle and Leonardo DiCaprio, and he denies himself nothing. And yet... He returns from his hedonistic pleasure cruise to tell his readers that from an under-the-sun perspective, an earthbound perspective, everything is meaningless. And as you can see from your handout, the first thing the teacher does is expose to us the problem of secularism. As God's inspired agent, Koheleth tells us, if life is viewed without reference to God, then the world we live in is a chaos without meaning or progress. And neither wisdom nor pleasure will enable us to live contentedly. 
And over everything, over everything, hangs the shadow of death and the judgment of God. Verse 2. Meaningless. Meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. My wife, Jill, and I, we never did this because we got our dog at 12 weeks and he was pretty much house trained. But I've heard that when a dog relieves itself on the carpet, some owners rub the animal's nose in it. Um, I don't know if that's good or bad, but some people do that. So they're kind of saying, here are the consequences, Fido, for messing on the carpet. And if you'll excuse the disgusting imagery, that's precisely the teacher's approach for the next 12 chapters. He mercilessly is rubbing his reader's nose, noses in the consequences of an anti-God worldview, of a merely earthbound epistemology, a point of view that's from uh, an under-the-sun perspective and not from God's perspective. And just as we rub Fido's nose in his mess and say, bad dog, so the teacher rubs the reader's nose in the mess of a secularist worldview and says, fool, fool, see the bleak, grimness of your worldview and despair meaningless utterly meaningless everything is meaningless verse three question what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun answer nothing from a secular perspective in a life lived apart from god people gain nothing from all their toil you spend your life working your fingers to the bone and in the end what do you have, what do you get for this of any permanence? Nothing. There is no gain. Generations come and go. The wind blows round and round. Streams flow into the sea. The secularist life is a profitless treadmill. And that's what's being described in these next verses. Constant work, no rest, no change, no profit. Just follow along. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from again, there they return again. All things are wearisome. More than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. Scientists tell us that the gravitational pull of a black hole is so powerful that even light can't escape its event horizon. A black hole's appetite is infinitely ravenous, sucking in even the fabric of space and time. And that ravenous hunger is an accurate portrait of the human heart, the human eye, the human ear. Human beings have a longing to be infinitely filled infinitely satiated, infinitely contented. And God implants that longing in our hearts that we, may, we might be filled and satisfied with his infinite glory. But the secularist or the inconsistent, disobedient Christian rebelliously spends their life trying to fill that vacuum with other things, what the Bible calls idols. But the eye never has enough of seeing and the ear is never satisfied. And as the black hole of our heart and eyes and ears suck in more and more idols, the less content we become. Because all the love and all the money and all the job satisfaction 
and all the drugs and all the adventure and all the sex and all the prominence is like throwing granules of sand into the Grand Canyon. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But if that truth is denied, if it's rejected, all that's left to give the life purpose and meaning and happiness are the things the five senses can explore under the sun. And so people stimulate those five senses in a gluttony of autonomous rebellion. The secularist life is like a little Tower of Babel erected on the satanic, shifting sand of a worldview that will not take into account the God who is there, the relational, communicating God who has disclosed himself in the Bible and ultimately, ultimately in his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And so the fool tells himself, if only I can accomplish great things that my name might live on. If I become a great innovator like uh, Steve Jobs or Elon Musk, then I will have accomplished something of significance. I mean, those men accomplished more in an afternoon than probably all of us together in our lifetimes, right? The teacher says, no. Verse 9, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which you can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Now, don't take that literally. Yes, smartphones and Teslas are something new. Our grandparents didn't enjoy those things. Uh, Koheleth is making a rhetorical point. He's undercutting those selfish, narcissistic aspirations human beings have to carve out some permanent place in history. He's rubbing the secularist nose in the futility of such an aspiration. Today, we look at people like Steve Jobs and Elon Musk as masters of the universe. In our time... Their names are household words. But tell me, if you can, who was the person who discovered that if you rub two sticks together, you can get fire? I mean, where are all the statues dedicated to that genius? (laughs) Who invented paper? Who invented the plow? Who invented movable type, gunpowder, the mariner's compass, eyeglasses. Those are some of the most important inventions in the history of the human race. One day, the technological equivalent of our smartphones will be the junk that kids buy in a gumball machine for a quarter, and Steve Jobs and Elon Musk will be long forgotten, just like the person who invented eyeglasses is long forgotten. Verse 11, no one remembers the former generations. Even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. The great artist, the great philanthropist, the great inventor, the great missionary, the great preacher, no one remembers the former generations. Think about it. People have had mountains named after them, but a following generation changes the name. All those great buildings and hospital wings in downtown Toronto named after wealthy philanthropists will one day be torn down, their names forgotten. You can be sure that one day, here's a vivid picture, a bulldozer operator wearing a dirty tank top and chomping on a big cigar is just going to be tearing down Roy Thompson Hall and Princess Margaret Hospital. Case in point, who is Roy Thompson? He's just some dead guy, right? It's just three meaningless syllables. 
This isn't biblical, of course, but they say that we die twice. Once when the breath leaves our body, and once when the last person we know says our name. Friends, from an under-the-sun perspective, it makes no difference what we accomplish in this life, how great we are, how famous we become. Death, death is the great leveler. Or uh, death smashes all hopes of being remembered forever. That's why the, which is why the humorist Woody Allen once quipped, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. (laughs) Death is the great leveler. Death smashes all hopes of being remembered forever, which means that means a life oriented toward pursuing a legacy for posterity only pursues the wind. What a waste of time. That is utterly meaningless. And as Christians, we need to guard our hearts against that temptation. It's not just a temptation. It's a, it's a whole worldview, a way of looking at reality and interpreting reality. It's, a pathetic and, it's pathetic and it's tragic and it's sinful. But aside from a few personal rules that make us seem eccentric, many professing Christians are basically indistinguishable from the world in our desire for a legacy. We're looking to make our mark in life or for our children to do so, right? Parents, be very careful. My daughter, she will be a doctor. My, my son will play in the NHL. Be careful you don't approach the world in a fundamentally irreligious manner from an under-the-sun perspective. In a local sense, yes, Christians live under the sun, along with everybody else on this planet, But the epistemological foundation of our understanding of everything begins with the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. The God who has sent his son to die for us. The God we serve in obedient fear. And we need to remind ourselves of that truth each day. We need to believe it, beloved. We need to live it. Lest we live lives of useless futility. Which carries us over into the next point and the rest of the book. The failure of wisdom to satisfy secular life, verses 12 through 18. Because perhaps you're thinking, well, Koheleth, uh, maybe working for a place in history is folly. You might have a point there. But surely there's satisfaction to be found in some areas of life. No, the teacher responds, not at all. Under the sun, from an earthbound perspective, it's all meaningless. It is all futile. So what the teacher does now is he shuts down all the escape routes. Will you seek refuge and wisdom? That only leads to futility. Will you milk life for all of its self-indulgent pleasures? That's uh, meaningless too. That's where he goes for the rest of this sermon text. Look at verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. And what better person to undertake this task than our super Solomon figure? Folks, this isn't going to be some circumscribed tentative affair, an experiment performed by some old spinster prudish schoolmarm. You know, by golly, I'm going to sample all the pleasures of life. (laughs) You know, this is going to be epic. You know, Koheleth is going to explore whatever the world has to offer a man of unlimited genius and unlimited wealth, sort of like Aristotle meets Mick Jagger. Verse 13b, what a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind, or or literally herding vapor. 
I love that phrase. Just imagine some Bay Street lawyer who clears $10 million a year returning home to his Rosedale mansion. Honey, I'm home. I was herding vapor all day. <laughs> Verse 15. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly, but I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. My unbelieving friend, if the Lord has given you a philosophical bent to your thinking, if he's blessed you with a keen analytical mind, then perhaps you see the same futility to life and wisdom as Koheleth has here. Life is a treadmill of futility. You see it. But don't be a fool who just waxes philosophical about it at dinner parties or makes jokes about it like Woody Allen or makes films about it like Igmar Bergman. It needs to cause you to despair and to sorrow and to grieve. You need to see the futility of unaided human wisdom and that futility must, must, must drive you to Jesus Christ. Because no philosophy, no commonly accepted wisdom can have enduring significance if its center isn't the cross. There is no under-the-sun wisdom that reconciles sinful men and women to a holy, angry God. And that makes human wisdom and human philosophy, in an ultimate sense, useless. It doesn't provide a truthful, accurate representation of reality because it's a wisdom uninformed by the special revelation of God. It's not reality from God's perspective. It's an under-the-sun perspective. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Colossae, Colossians 2.8. He writes, See to it that no one, be that your super-genius professor who's won a Nobel Prize, or your beloved mother who's the sweetest woman on earth but who's built her worldview on shifting sand, See to it that no one takes you captive. That's a strong word. Takes you captive. How? Through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. And so starting in chapter 2, the teacher turns to the failure of pleasure-seeking and self-indulgence to satisfy secular life. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I, I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So don't don't misunderstand. Koheleth isn't saying that pleasure is never pleasurable, just that it's chasing after the wind. That's what he's saying. Pleasure is ephemeral. Pleasure is fleeting. It's an unsatisfying thing for people to pursue during the few days of their lives. It's foolish. So next he turns to building a vast estate with all the pleasures tied to success, all the pleasures tied to money, 
Verse 4, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, all the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. And all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward for all my toil. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I appreciate his honesty. Uh, He tells us that his heart took delight in his work and that this delight was the reward for his labor. His hands had kept him pleasurably occupied. His toil was enjoyably strenuous. And we can all relate to that, right? It's, it's, a pleasure, it's a pleasurable thing to work, to accomplish something, to build something. Yet, he looks back on all his projects and everything he has toiled to achieve, and he knows those accomplishments have no eternal significance. They too are meaningless. It's just chasing after the wind. He's herding vapor. In fact, he says in verse 18 and 19 that everything he's built up to and achieved with his own hands, he's going to have to leave behind after he dies. And who knows? The person he entrusts all this to might be a fool. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. Again, death. Friends, death is the great relativizer of every conceivable advantage or pleasure gained in this life. No amount of money, no amount of wisdom, no amount of hedonism can insulate a person from the grave. We need to think about that. Verse 12. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads while the fools walk in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated my life. Because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave it all, all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. Steve Jobs was a remarkable man. Uh, He was a self-made billionaire who made his mark building an international electronics empire out of nothing, and he did it twice. 
Jobs, uh, soon after Jobs resigned from Apple in 1985 during a power struggle with CEO John Scully, the company he started took a nosedive. Many of you are too young to remember this, but back in the 90s, Apple computers were a joke. That was 80s retro. It wasn't until Jobs returned in 1997 as CEO that the company returned to the path of financial solvency. And now Apple has an incredible $346 billion in assets. But Steve Jobs is dead. And the company he poured his life into, even at the cost of his role as a father to his kids, that's something that he admitted to his biographer in his deathbed, the company he poured his life into is now run by someone else. And sure, the company's making money hand over fist, but they say Apple hasn't done anything truly innovative since Jobs' death in 2011. They've just made incremental changes to products that already exist. And on the last day, Steve Jobs will give an account for his life before the exalted Christ. Both the wise and the fool end up dead. Neither will be remembered very long after they are buried. Death swamps over both, and the dead must leave all they've gained to others who have not toiled for it. Tim Cook couldn't have started Apple if he tried. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. But with verse 24 comes the turning point. It's a turning point which carries over into chapter 3, which we'll continue with next week, Lord willing. That's going to be part two of this sermon. But in this next section, which we're just going to touch on this now to the end of the chapter, Koheleth tells us that humanity is to enjoy the created realm. Not merely that we're supposed to enjoy it, presumably by sort of being Pollyanna fools and sticking our heads in the sand so we don't see all the futility. No, he tells us how such a thing is logically, consistently, biblically possible. We enjoy the good things, the good things of the created realm by looking beyond our earthbound, under the sun, finite perspective to God himself and the life of faith that we have in him. Only then can we appreciate the temporary, pleasurable things he gives to us as gifts in this life without spiraling into despair and futility. Christian, let me ask, do you enjoy life? Do you enjoy your life? Be honest about that. Do you enjoy being alive? And do you enjoy the good gifts that come to you from God's sovereign hand as you work hard and as you accomplish things? Life is to be enjoyed. Verse 24, A person could do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This too, I see, is from the hand of God, for without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? Beloved, every good gift we have in life is to be enjoyed, is to be truly enjoyed, is all given to us from God's good hand. Just think of the food that you eat. Christians ought to enjoy their food more than anybody else on the face of the earth. This tasty stuff is provided by God himself to nourish us and to sustain us. That's why we thank God for our food before we eat it. 
And this applies to every area of life, not just for the foodies. <laughs> Christians should appreciate and enjoy our homes, our measure of health, our jobs, our family, more than anybody else. A personal God gave us these good things. We're to be stewards of these good things. But we're to enjoy all those gifts in the fear of the Lord. We place our possessions and the pleasures we enjoy in a biblical context. These our gifts all come from the good hand of God, our Father. Therefore, we're not covetous of the good gifts God has given to somebody else. <clears throat> Nor are we dependent upon God's good gifts for our happiness. So there's no need to cling to these good gifts with clenched fists. New City, the first sign that there might be a serious, serious problem with the biblical integrity of our worldview is we're trying too hard to extract from those gifts and life and pleasures more significance than they can rightly provide. Think about it. Are you trying to extract, extract from your marriage, your relationships, your friendships, your children, your career, your assets, your ministry, more significance than God intends? Are you looking at all those good things from an under-the-sun perspective or from a biblical vantage point of the cross of Jesus Christ and in the fear of God? Kevin DeYoung wisely notes, to be a Christian is to receive God's good gifts and enjoy them the most, need them the least, and give them away the most freely. To be a Christian is to receive God's good gifts and enjoy them the most, need them the least, and give them away the most freely. And if you're feeling the tug of this world, Christian, and we all do, but if you feel you might be in danger of being pulled right out of the boat by your overpowering thirst for the things of this world, the things that this world considers to be important and precious, if you perceive that you would gladly, you would gladly trade away a non-damnable chunk of personal holiness for money, let's say, or if you'd be willing to barter off some of your fear of God for power or fame or for love, or if the good things the Lord has given you already do not give you joy. You are a joyless Christian, and you look at life with the same pessimistic spectacles as does the thoughtful, consistent secularist with the 2 plus 2 equals 5 worldview, then, brother, sister, you need to look again to the cross of Jesus Christ with new eyes and with new understanding. And Lord willing, this sermon, and over the weeks, this book, will be used by God to facilitate that new understanding of life. This is serious business. Because if the gospel got you saved, but it's not changing your perception from an under-the-sun vantage point to that of a life-enjoying disciple of Jesus Christ, who denies themselves and daily picks up their instrument of shame and torture and death and follows their master, Jesus Christ, in fearful awe, then you need to seriously ask yourself, is, in fact, the foundation I've built my life upon the Lord Jesus, or am I just religious? 
as a general rule, verse 26, to the person who pleases him, as a general rule, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness, but to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. With this, I'll close, and this sets us up for next week, for part two, as we move into chapter three. Do you recall how the book of Ecclesiastes ends? It's the message of the entire book. We looked at it before. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Look at the very top of your bulletin. Here's the whole message. Fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life that will enjoy God's good gifts and to escape the final judgment. That is the antithesis of secular pessimism. You see, the teacher, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, holds out to us two ways of life, the vicious circle of a pointless world, temporary pleasures, fruitless work, futile wisdom, inevitable death, or a truly enjoyable life taken from the hand of God in the assurance of faith that he deals appropriately with the righteous and the unrighteous. Which will you choose? Amen.